Let us pray. O God, who in creating human nature hast wonderfully dignified it, and still more wonderfully reformed it, grant that we may become partakers of his divine nature, who deigned to make, partake of our human nature, thy Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, throughout all ages of ages. Amen. For some reason, uh, there, was, there, there, there was an answer to one of the questions came to me yesterday, I believe it was. And one of you asked the last time about the fasting rules and the time of the fast. And I said midnight to Vespers, but that's only on certain feast days. It's actually midnight to midnight. So just FYI, fasting goes from midnight to midnight. Um, anyway, the question we want to ask today is, why is it you Orthodox worship liturgical, fixed, and ancient methods rather than spontaneous and modern? Uh, and this is really an important issue, I think, uh, because we are in a society inundated with the spontaneous and the modern. For example, more and more Christian communities in the United States are going to what are called contemporary services. So if you notice, if you, if you settle in a town somewhere and look at the, well, I used to say, used to say the phone book, but you can't do it, we don't have those anymore. So, and that's from the 20th century, and I'm a 20th century creature, so I, some of you are 21st century creatures, and so you wouldn't know these things. Uh, but you know more about, phone, about email and, and getting online and stuff like that. But in any case, if you look at this, what you'll see is a lot of churches will have now two services. Maybe they're phasing them out. I think they are. So they went from traditional forms of Christian worship, more or less traditional, like organ and choirs and things like that, to rock bands. Listen, I'm a product of the 60s. And when we in the 60s, we wanted folk music, let me tell you. That's what we wanted. If we knew the church... We knew the church would arrive when it got to folk music. Well, now they got bands up there. Wow. I mean, in the 60s, I would have been really turned on, really excited. And, and fortunately, it didn't happen then. It might have ruined me as a Christian. So in any case, now everybody's, everybody's doing it. I mean, it's really common. It doesn't matter where you go, what the group is, what the denomination is, what their tradition is. They've got bands up there. Uh, and usually when they advertise their services, it's contemporary, the main service, and traditional, which is for us older folk who remember the old way, uh, is relegated to the early service. I can tell you right now what's going to happen there is eventually as more and more of the older folk die off, the early service will be phased out and the only service will be the contemporary service. Number one. Number two. <coughs> Removing churchy words. This you can do by going online. Just Google churches in your town or wherever you live and look at the names. And or when you drive down the street and you see church, you know, in America you see churches everywhere, right? They're all over the place. Look at the names. More and more, more frequently, we're finding that people are, churches are moving away from anything that sounds churchy. Like, Tower House Prayer, or Tower Prayer of, of, of God, or something like that, or such and such international ministries. 
Well, you, you know, you think Christianity, but, but remove the word church. Just get it out of there. And that's what more and more people are doing. There is, I don't want to name any names, but there is one that is actually taking the word church out and using community. And this is a biggie. So we're not, we're, we can't even say church anymore because we might turn people off uh, and we have to have something that appeals to, the, to those out there, to the, to the seekers, so to speak, to the non-believers. The church is really for the faithful. So these two things are going on. These are modern churches, so to speak. I have a prediction, so those of you who are young enough to, be, to outlive me might be able to see whether it comes true, and that is that someday most of the churches in America are going to be nothing more than social service organizations with Christian trappings. There's already one, and you all know it, and I don't need to name it, that started out as a denomination in Anglicanism. I mean, not as a denomination, as a revival movement in Anglicanism, uh, and now is seen as a social service organization. They would probably claim otherwise, but that's what they're known for. So you can look into that yourself and see it. In any case, that's the, the situation in which we find ourselves. So you come to, when we come to orthodoxy, <laughs> why is it you people do all this old stuff? Why? Can't you get on the ball? I mean, we should get rid of the choirs, get rid of the organ, and let's get a guitar mass going. Uh, you know, after all, the priest, this one at least, is, is into that kind of stuff, or used to be. Uh, so what I wanted to do is to, to sort of answer that question. Why use that liturgy stuff, that old liturgy stuff? Uh, and I want to answer that question from a number of different perspectives. First, let's look at the word, the meaning of the word liturgy. It comes from a Greek word, which means a religious service or a ritual. It developed, it was assumed by Jewish usage, actually started in Greece as a secular term, so any government activity could be considered liturgy, but eventually took on a religious connotation as Greek society, as philosophy grew and Greek society became more religiously oriented, which, can you believe that there was a time when Greek society wasn't religiously oriented? Any of these in history and social life? So in any case, when Judaism started using the Greek language uh, back in the early centuries B.C., uh, this word liturgy was picked up to refer to any service rendered to God on behalf of God and on behalf of the people. And it became specifically related to the work of the priests and the Levites in the temple, and even the people in the temple in a way. So it means the work the work that's done, the work of the people. Interestingly enough, we have two main languages that, that from which most of our services and in, in our, our rites in Orthodoxy derive. Greek, which is mainly Eastern Rite, and Latin, which is Western Rite. In Latin, the word that came to be applied to the services, the, of the prayer services, not the mass, but the prayer services, was officium, from which we get the word office, the place where work is done. So you have two words in the church, liturgies, liturgy, and office, officium, both of mean, which mean work. When we have guitar masses and things like that, we come to be entertained. People talk in America about being, being fed. Well, 
What does that mean? Be energized so I'll have enough gumption in me to get up next week and come again? Well, that's a passion, and that dies. And we know it. We have to get up of our own volition and do this. And so it's the work. We should expect to come here, not be edified, you know, bubbling over and fully of emotion. That happens anyway if we have the right circumstances going on. But we should come here expecting to be exhausted when we leave, having prayed for the world. That's our place as priests, all of us. And we're all priests, not just us. We're priests to you, and you're priests to the world. We should all be exhausted. And the only way that can do it is if this is the work of the people. The work. So rather than come here and expect to be gratified, we should expect to be tired. So, so some things about liturgy. Number one is repetition. We've already dealt with this in some, but I want to mention some of it again. Ancient Judaism had no problems with repetition. Neither did the early church. Remember that when Christ condemned vain repetition, not repetition, we saw this before, vain. And by that's probably referred to an ancient rabbinic practice of trying to say a prayer X number of times in order to manipulate God into working. So, you know, you can say mass 18 times. It's not going to manipulate God. God will not be manipulated by us. It may be effective and it may be useful and it may be good for us. It may be what we need to do, but we don't manipulate God. He's not, he's not the guy in the box, the magic guy in the box, and when we need him, we open the box, we take it down off the shelf, we open the box, and we pull him out, and we do something to make him happy so to get what we want, then we shut it up and put him back on the shelf and ignore him again. Because that's vain repetition. So in any case, Judaism didn't, well, Judaism handed on to us repetition uh, let me give you one example. Psalm 135 in the Septuagint, 136 in the non-Septuagint Old Testament. So look at it, Psalm 136 slash 135. It's a litany. It's a litany that was used in the temple, and the church assumed it. This is where litanies come from, repetition, right? And so, you know, we'll give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, and the people respond, for his mercy endureth forever. Throughout the entire thing, for his mercy endureth forever. Well, what about these people, these Orthodox people? Lord, have mercy, Lord, have mercy. What's wrong with these people? That's all they say is, Lord, have mercy. I know one priest who said, when you become Orthodox, you only need to learn two things, how to make the sign of the cross and also how to say, Lord, have mercy. So it's true. <laughs> what? Forty times. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and to do some prostrations while you're at it. Um, just do them over and over again. The, the parable, the tenacious widow in Luke 18, 1 to 8, the moral of the story is, and I quote from Christ, that they learn to pray always and not lose heart. What is that? Repetition. And when the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray, he said, pray thus, our Father. So, so technically, every time pray, that's, Anything one should say, according to his words, right? Which our prayers are our father, our father. It's repetition. So when you say the divine author in the Western, in the monastic tradition, our father in the Hail Mary, you begin our father, and you say the our father at the end three times. Repetition. All oh, these people. So in any case, it's 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 repetitive. 
So fixed. The liturgy is fixed, and there's a reason. Now I'm going to do, give you an example of, of why the reason. In a, and I can use this examine this example openly. In the Episcopal Church's 1979 prayer book, they came. They had they had two rites. One rite one for those of you former Anglicans will know what this is. Rite one was a service much like ours, Old English, much like the one we have now, with some omissions. The rite two was was the Mass liturgy in contemporary English, and it wasn't the same rite. It was a modern rite, a little bit shorter. And then they had something which we clergy jokingly called rite three. Rite three was a, is, was a, a Eucharistic ser, uh, service, basically that it included the Sanctus and the, the institution, the words of Christ at the Last Supper. And then, then the priest could say, make everything else up as he went along. Now, this was based on something which is seen in the early second century in patristic writers, where one of them said, the order of the service is this, that the bishop will do this and this, and then he will, as he is able, recount the drama of salvation. Well, in other words, it was part of it was spontaneous. But that didn't last long because by the beginning of the third century, that's gone. Uh, it's just gone uh, because obviously it doesn't work. Well, I, I, I was, I was I'm so smart. Let me just tell you, I'm really smart. So follow me. Just, I'll get you there. Uh, so anyway, I decided one day in my parish I was going to try right three. I figured I know enough that I can get away with this. I can pull it off. So we did it during a weekday mass, not a Sunday, thank God, because I would have just... <laughs> Only a handful of people were aware of my inadequacies. So in any case, I started the canon, and then I got to the part I was supposed to do spontaneous and su- spontaneously, and suddenly I couldn't remember a thing. I mean, I couldn't even remember from the established rites what to say next. And it suddenly occurred to me, this is why the church in its wisdom fixes the whole thing. So fools like you, Rooney, don't take over. So there's wisdom in this. So in any case, it's fixed. So we all say the same thing. And we don't make it up as we go along. We don't recreate. We don't reinvent the wheel, as the old saying goes. <coughs> well, if we look at, keep those two things in mind, and then we look at temple worship at the time of the early church. The temple worship, as described in Leviticus, if you want to get an idea, look at the book of Leviticus. It was written to the priests of the temple and the people, but mainly to the priests, uh, and it describes a lot of things they need to know in detail. It's fixed. In other words, it's in the book of Leviticus. It's fixed. This is why the Sadducees felt like only the Torah was necessary and the rest of the books of the Bible and all the tradition of the rabbis was not necessary because it was fixed in the Torah. Everything you needed was there. It was repetitious. The, the Jewish services required a calendar, some people say, well, it was all spontaneous. Well, they had a calendar. They did the same services. They did the cycle just like we do year after year after year after year after year. All the days were set. They knew in advance what was coming. It was very ritualistic. It wasn't totally spontaneous. There was some spontaneity, but many it was, relig- it was ritualistic. Do this and do this and do this. For example, when you bring, bring an animal to sacrifice, you say a prayer and you lay your hands on it. Uh, before you turn it over to the priest to kill it. And another priest is ordered to catch the blood in a, in a, in a basin 
and then to take it and throw it on the foot of the altar. And then it's taken off to the side and, and, and processed, as we used to call it in the meat market business, uh, right there in the temple while the people and the Levites are singing. <laughs> That's established. Very specific in instruction. So in some of the temple liturgical usage, things that come across with that, the presentation of the sacrifice, whatever sacrifice was offered, the, the person offering would lay hands on it and associate himself with it. And in communion, the priest, on behalf of all, it says he takes it in his hands, the sacrifice. That's the same thing. The offering of the sacrifice, the eating of the sacrifice. If it were a meat or certain times of meat offerings, the priest would eat some of it, and some of it was given to the peace people to take back to their homes and eat. In the early church, it was not uncommon for, for people to take uh, communion home with them in, the, in, what, the first two centuries, I think. And probably there were abuses, and that had to stop. But they would take communion home with, and commune themselves during the week. Saint, I think it's St. Cecilia who was martyred because she was taking communion home uh, after a, a Sunday service and some thugs decided to accost her and they wanted to know what she was holding close to her body, treasuring. And so they killed her. Uh, and she's the statue is of her lying on the ground holding this thing to her heart. You see, she was taking it home to consume it. There were hymns for each service day or days, whatever, or season. Uh, specific hymns. So <laughs> they had something they had to say in this in song. And by the way, in, in, the, in the Western Rite, the office hymns are designed, most of the office hymns, not all, but most, are designed much like collects, so that they, they pray with the same intensity, probably perhaps more so uh, because of the length of them, uh, but they're designed just like collects. Uh, the, the high priest on certain holy days would sense the holy place. He'd take the, ins the censer and go into the holy of holies, and he would sense it and fill the room with smoke. That was something that was required. He didn't have an option to say, well, I don't feel like doing that today. I'm not going to do it. He did it. And at the end of the day, there would be a blessing and a dismissal. What do we have in all of our services? Blessings and dismissals. So, in any case... Some of the temple. The synagogues were established in Palestine beginning in the second century BC, and the roots of it, of synagogues, actually extend back to the Babylonian captivity in the sixth century. But in any case, they were meant to provide local expressions of what went on in the temple, the parts in the temple that the lay people could do. So they included litanies. The first part of the synagogue service was what's called the, the Amidah. The 18 benedictions, 18 prayers, which if you look at them, they look, and you go to an Eastern Rite service, it looks strangely like that opening litany in the Eastern Rite. Strangely like it. Or maybe it's Eastern Rite like the, like the synagogue. I don't know. Uh, but in any case, the, uh, by, the Amidah, by the way, in case you've gone to an Eastern Rite service and you can't understand why they don't sit down, the Amidah means standing. Because that was the way Jewish prayer was done in the early centuries, standing. So if we sit a little bit, you know, uh, if we kneel a little bit, be thankful. Kneeling, by the way, is just a Western rite of doing a prostration, which is go down on the floor and then get back up. And as you get older, it gets harder and harder to do. And 
so, um, and Father, <coughs> one Orthodox priest who's now dean of one of our seminaries said, when you do the, in the Eastern Rite, they do the sign of the cross with, with Batania. They bow to the floor. They touch the floor. Say, I can't even do it. He said, when, you, when you're young and vibrant, you do it. You touch the floor and you bow down. You do this three or four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times. He said, then you get a little bit older and it's about like this. And he said, then when you get real old, it's like this. <laughs> so, and you know, there's truth to this, not only in terms of the humor of it all, but, but the church allows for this and understands it, thank God. So the Western Rite genuflection is sort of a severe form of that. Uh, so in any case, uh, liturgical actions that were present in the synagogue, uh, prostrations, bowing, touching things. You know, if you look at, if you see some synagogue service that's been handed down, that they, when they read the Torah scroll, they march down the middle aisle, and it's, it's veiled, and they carry it back up to the front, and as they go by, the people reach out and touch it. <laughs> Touch their lips. Hello. That's what we do with icons. Standing, sitting, kneeling, when to do it. I, I get the biggest charge out of uh, some of these churches on TV that, that don't want to do all the stuff we do, and yet I heard one in, in, one, in one city where this was a weekday service, mind you, but the pastor said, please stand for the reading. He has a scripture reading that he did. Please stand for the scripture in respect for the scriptures. I thought, hello, that's what we do on gospel reading. We stand, right? Hello. That, why? Because everybody knows you have to do it. You just, your body has to get involved. body is involved in worship. Two lessons. Synagogue used two lessons. That, that's part of, that's got a historical backing to it, which is where we got the two lessons. Often those lessons needed to be explained, and so the homily was born. It started out in the book of Ezra when, they were, when the people came back to the promised land speaking Aramaic and the scripture texts were in Hebrew, which are cousin languages, but just different enough that you might not understand it. So they had to explain it and gave birth to homilies, which we can do all the time. And then the synagogue ended with a blessing, which is sort of what we do in the mass. These are the things with temple and the synagogue, what first century Christians understood by the word liturgy. If you use the word liturgy, that's what you're talking about, right? All that stuff. Now, having said that, listen to the New Testament, some of the usages in the New Testament of the word liturgy. And if you can go, go get a concordance and check it out yourself. Don't take my word for it. So in Hebrews 10, 11, Referring to temple practice. Every priest standeth daily ministering, the RSV says. Doing liturgy is what the Greek says. Luke 1.23, referring to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, when he was in the temple. Remember, he was, the angel appeared to him and he went mute. As soon as the days of his ministration, his course in liturgics, his liturgizing, were finished, it says. Hebrews 8.2, speaking of Christ, it describes him as a minister of the sanctuary, a liturgist of the sanctuary. Christ is a liturgist. Hebrews 1.7, speaking of the angels in heaven, who maketh his ministers, his liturgists, a flame of fire. So the angels, what do you see in Revelation? They're falling down before God. They're prostrating themselves. They're singing. They're, 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 raising, they're tossing incense. <laughs> tossing incense. You throw it down to the earth. Uh, it's, it's all part of the ritual. 
Acts 13.2, speaking of the apostolic community, they ministered to the Lord and fasted. They did liturgy to the Lord and fasted. I always thought, you know, they ministered to the Lord. That means they said some prayers, some spontaneous prayers, mind you. They made it up on the spot. Um, but, but no, they did liturgy to the Lord and fasted. So it's not uncommon in orthodoxy when something really serious comes around to say a mass. And last, St. Paul spoke of, speaks of himself in Romans 15, 16 as a minister of Jesus Christ, a liturgist of Jesus Christ. St. Paul speaks of himself that way. So you have all of that in the liturgy, in the fixed prayers that we do repeatedly. And then you have other levels. For example, the whole liturgy is filled with symbolic meaning. Symbolic meaning. I was reading this morning, and there was, I wish I could remember now exactly what it was. I'm afraid I won't recite it correctly, but there was reference to a parable in the New Testament, and, I, and about five different things came out. That's why we do that in the Mass. Uh, well, that's only one, a symbolic meaning. There's the anomnesis. Christ said, do this in anomnesis of me, in remembrance of me. So we do it. That's present. What is happening? Salvation, the very actions of salvation where God incarnate goes to the cross on our behalf take place literally in our presence when we do what Christ said to do. That's what anomnesis means. So you don't have to believe it. You may think it's only symbolism. The fact of the matter is what it says is this is. And that's present in all the liturgies. Historical. <laughs> there are loads, centuries of history woven into all of this our history, woven into it. As an historian, I'm telling you, I get excited. I, I, I see stuff all the time, and, and, and I'm just, it makes me want to go back and read some more so I can refresh my memory and try to make sure I got it all down, because there's so much. And after all these years, I'm still learning some of this. It's theological. That is, it tells us something about God Remember, theology is what we say about God. It tells us something about God. This whole thing, all the liturgies, they all have something to say to us. And lastly, they focus, everything we do focuses upon encounter with God. Remember, that's what this is all about. We have encountered, we have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen, and if we haven't seen, it's not his fault, it's ours. So we need to ask ourselves, what am I missing here and why? What am I doing that I'm missing? Because the, the essence is that focus. So you have all of this stuff, all of this stuff woven together. And then, <coughs> and then we're, <coughs> sorry. <coughs> now, not even incense to cause me to do that. <laughs> Listen, you can, always, you can always tell the priest gets a mouthful of incense. And it comes at really weird times. It's, suddenly his voice is gone, uh, just gone. And, and, and that one came back quickly. Uh, sometimes it happens and it's 10 minutes before it clears. So I guess that's why we have choirs <laughs> sing when we can't, chanters. In any case, you put all this together and remember something we, we heard in the earlier lesson, received and delivered. That's a part of the tradition that we have. We received this. And we deliver it unchanged to the next generation, received and delivered. 
And that's why we receive it and deliver it unchanged. Why would we do anything to it? See, if we change it and throw all this music out and go to a guitar mass, uh, then we basically are handing down to the next generation something else. Remember what I've said, every century has left its mark on the liturgy at the beginning and the end. So it's not really in the liturgy, it's, it's added to it. It's at the beginning and the end. And so, the, but yeah, you can argue uh, it's sort of changed, but it isn't. The heart's still there. The original stuff is still there. The original practice is still there. It's being passed on to us, and we deliver it unchanged. So in answer to the question, which was, why is Orthodox worship liturgical, fixed, and ancient rather than spontaneous and modern? Because the Christianity has always used liturgy, which is fixed in repetition. We've always done this. We use forms used in the early church, mentioned in kernel form in the New Testament, handed down to us. So who's the, who really believes in the Bible? <laughs> so I, don't, I don't mean to be facetious here, but it's a good question to ask. Are you Bible-believing? <laughs> More than you know, let me tell you. More than you know. These forms have been proven to lead people to God for 3,000 years. I don't mean 2,000 years, 3,000 years. Go back to the Old Testament period. This has been proven, and what we do <clears throat> participates in that. Fixed repetitious prayers and rituals sear theology into our souls. The same thing done over and over sears it into our souls. It's sort of like reading a Bible verse again and again and again. And just when you think you've got it down and you've memorized it, lo and behold, you read something new in it. <laughs> it's the, but this is the whole package. Everything participates in this. Liturgy ensures that we pray with one action and intention so that we're all on the same page, doing the same thing, so that we have the same experience because it will differ when it is received into each of us and how it transforms each of us. But it'll be the same thing because God is one. He's not many. Modern practices are constantly in flux. They're temporary and faddish. And we don't want to go there. Because what's popular today won't be tomorrow. I'm just sort of like the guitar, the guitar and the bands and stuff. I guarantee that's on its way out sooner or later. People will get bored. They're going to want something else. And I, I, I tell you this, and some of you may have seen this on the news the other night. There was an article on one of the local Dallas stations about a, a local parish. It, it mentioned the name, but I didn't recognize it, and I couldn't see if it was any part of any known denomination. So it might have been one of those independent churches. But they did a service that they claimed was was created and put together by AI. <laughs> and that was the news story. And the, the, the end of it was that people were not impressed. <laughs> people in the congregation were not impressed, but they weren't that offended either. They said it wasn't bad, it was just sort of flat. And I think that's the way they described it more or less. And the comment at it was, the pastor or whoever that was talking to the, 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 the reporter said, you know, I think we're going to put this on hold for a while, but who knows what might transpire in the future? And, and all I could think of is, yeah, that's what's going to transpire in the future. That's what we're going to be doing. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Now you're thinking like Orthodox. <laughs> so the, anyway, they're, they're faddish, and that's the, that'll be the new fad. 
Maybe it'd be something else that'll come along. I don't know. It just humans are strange because, you know, the devil's at work. He doesn't want us doing this thing because of what it'll do to us. It'll change us and make us Christ-like, and that he does not want. And so lastly, the ancient practices are established, tried, perfected, not subject to the whims of modern emotionalism and instability. That's why we do liturgy. And we don't have to apologize for it. You know, some people don't understand it. Some people are just not ready for it. we got to let them go. Uh, and, you know, you never know what will happen. Somebody will come in and they'll see the service and they go, oh, that's horrible. And they take off and they go somewhere else. And then 20 years later they come back. You know, it's been hanging on. I've heard this story many times. It's been hanging on haunting me for years, what you do. <laughs> you know, so I think that's what... What got me with, with Judaism was studying Judaism. I, it just, when I first studied it was, it was to understand the Pharisees, and then as I began to realize there was more to it than that, it was more a part of our being, and it just lingered, and, and I still find myself wanting to go back and read more, more. I want to know and understand it because so much of it is a part of who we are, and so much of it is not. Um, so in any case, the next time we'll look at why make confession to a priest. <laughs> Anyway, Let me, as we close, we have about another five minutes, and, and I, worship is what began my journey to the ancient faith. Everything in my whole being, as I've grown up, the grandest experiences of God that I've had in my life was always in worship. And what Father was talking about very early on about you know this guy you know where he came from, I was a. Con- I was a contemporary worship leader in churches for a very long time. And quite frankly, it was before it really has gone to where it's gone now, where it is a rock concert now. Yeah. Okay? It really is. I've been to a number of them, and I see what it's become. And, and uh, when I was in my 30s, something started dawning on me that, that gave me, began to give me a conscience problem. And that was this. The question came into my mind, who is it that determines how God should be worshipped? Because, see, in all my worship leading, I was getting more and more tired of trying to foster the environment of worship Mm -hmm. so that God's people could worship. And that's what was on my heart. The heart was good. The method would need Mm -hmm. correcting, you see. But I got more and more tired of trying to come up with ways or figure out how to, and it dawned on me, who determines how God is to be worshipped? And when I looked at the entire history of God's worship, it was God alone who with minute details gave them what the facility should look like, what they should do in that facility, what prayers should be done, what feasts to celebrate. What vestments to wear. What vestments to wear. <laughs> what the priests would wear in the Old Testament. Look how detailed it is. Why? Because God's been worshipped eternally. And he knows how to be worshipped. And he wanted his people on earth to experience the divine and eternal worship <coughs> in heaven. Because in heaven, they are before God and the altar and with the incense and the angels, and they are praying, and they are worshiping, and they are interceding, and all of these things are happening, and God wanted his people, he wanted to manifest that for us. 
Because that's the only way we'll see eternity, is to be in the presence of God in that way. Look, I still sit down at the piano, whether it's at my house or over here, and I will praise God and I will experience God when I'm sitting and praising him. There is nothing wrong with that. You want to gather a group together, get the guitars out and praise God as long as what you're doing is spirit and truth. And a lot of the songs they were, that are in the worship today, they are not truth. And so my heart really started getting really convicted about that. So when people ask me the question, I go back from, you know, some of them are ahead of, were ahead of me. They're coming at least from a liturgical background or some more formal structure. I, I had less of that. Liturgy was a curse word to me when I was growing up, you know. The reality is what we do. Why do we do it? Because this is what's done in heaven. And because this is how God has told his people to worship him. And we, we must trust that. We have a question around here in this year. Yeah. I was going to say, um, it's interesting. I played for years in a, like a, in, a, in a band at a mega church, thousands of people. Mm-hmm. And when I left, um, because I'd been like in all my free non-working time, which was to say not Sunday, then I would, because it was like, half-hour income, and so, but we were going to St. Maximus, checking all the services, and it became more and more clear that these guys, like, I just have to stop, you know, I can't even go on Sunday morning because I'm doing this, I'm scared to stop doing this because, you know, what are we going to do for money, and, um, because we were paid, <laughs> so, um, but when I, when we finally left, I'm like, okay, we just have to do it, you know, it's, we, we just have to, we just have to stop become, and become catechumens, be baptized, and join church. And so um, when I stopped, one of my guys in my band was like, well, don't when you get there, I mean, like, isn't everything so scripted and, 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 and rigid? And I said, there is nothing more scripted than what you and I and all of us do on Sunday. <laughs> Everybody's got, I said, we're back in our ear monitors because we have to have everything, the tempo timed perfectly because at, you know, T minus whatever that countdown clock that only we can see says, they're going to beam a video of the pastor in do the teaching and like and so like every every like lord we just want to praise you every hand wave it's got to be on cue because we got to be done when that starts i said i said like where's the i mean and there was one week that they wanted us to um there's one week they wanted the band to lead by example and take communion on stage and i said i'm not doing that i knew enough i wasn't orthodox but i knew enough that i was like i'm not going to play around with that if you want to fire me go ahead but Every church, every church has a liturgy. The question is, is the one designed by God to heal the soul? But every church has a liturgy. Like the old, like the old, you know, the old joke about, like, well, we don't have any creed but Christ. Yeah. Which is a creed. Right. (laughs) Right. I just want to say, I've been walking this walk for a long time. When I first came into the church, I was coming from this disparate background. But what really hooked me is the fact that after about a year or so, I had that service memorized because it's in song. <laughs> if you have song, I mean, that's how they memorized the, you know, the, the Odyssey and the Iliad. They were in song. And so when we have song in our church, when you learn those songs, you can't help it. It's the same ones every week, the liturgical ones. And then you put the hymns on top of that with all the story, you will carry
that is what we do. We sing to the Lord, and we sing it. And I like to think, too, that when we first came in, it's like, man, we're going to sing the glory, we're going to sing this, we're going to sing this, and then we finally get to the service. It wakes you up. It energizes you. You get oxygenated, and you're focused and ready to worship the Lord. So I think the church has provided us a wonderful opportunity to worship God, and it doesn't change, and it shouldn't, because... I knew if I were ever cast into the deep dungeons of prison, I could worship God. I had the songs. I had the words that I needed. I didn't need to make anything up because I'm not capable of doing what the church had provided. But those are fixed prayers, and they're not worth anything. (laughs) (laughs) That, That last lesson in this series, we have two more to go. The last lesson is on why we sing our services. And I'm going to address that. Very good. And it actually goes back to ancient Judaism. Very good. Yes. I'm oh, sorry about <laughs> Okay, so I'm reading the book of Corinthians. And it, was, it was a hard break for the Corinthians to make that move over, right? But, uh, and uh, what you were talking about made me think of the book, Abolition of Man, Innovation. Um, I think it's the Corinthians side by side that was stuck with their culture to make that break. I mean, Apostle Paul was there, I mean, he kind of, kind of closer to Christ than you know, myself. I don't know, I fear because if they could make a break, how can I make a break? I mean, is it in a sense, because we've bombarded with innovation in this world so much, change, like you said, change, 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 so new, new, new. We're in that culture. How can I make that break successful? Because I see myself more as a Corinthian. Go back and forth. We have to keep going at it. We have to tr- we have to we have to entrust ourselves to what the church offers and begin to do it exactly as it says. That's what we have to do. We you know it's the word obedience in, in orthodoxy doesn't just mean obedience to commandments. It means obedience to the authority, structure, everything in the church. And it's a part of being in Christ. We do what he says to do. We exercise that obedience. And when we do it with open hearts and willingly submitting ourselves to it, we open ourselves to what God is doing. And he begins to reveal himself to us. So... You know, it, there may be times when what's being suggested is seems weird to us, uh, off the wall, doesn't make any sense, but we submit to it anyway. I mean, come on. When we talk about all the things in the Gospels and Christ's words and how many of us find things, oh, I can't, you know, like, forgive your enemies and pray for them. Ah, that's, I say that when I bring it up all the time, I guess because, you know, I have issues with that, and we all do. <laughs> no. So in any case... Every one of us has heard that and said, I don't know about that one. I don't know about that one. But when we, we all also know that when we do submit to it, we're transformed. And so that's what we have to do. We have to use ourselves and accept. I look at, yeah, I look at it as the woman with the issue of blood. If you could only picture, it says a multitude was surrounding Jesus. She had to get through to get to him. If she had to touch them all, she rendered them unclean. Yeah, 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 yeah. But she she kept pressing through. And ultimately, who's the one that healed God? Stay in the game. The game is set with the wisdom of Christ that knows how to heal and transform the soul and break us from the things we're tied to. So keep going. 
Yeah. 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 That's that's the idea. <laughs> You're on the right road. <laughs> Welcome to the club. All right, thank you.